All right, Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read all the way through to um, chapter 13, verse 4. So we'll get started now. And the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sechem, unto the plain of Moray. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. And he removed him from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed, going on still towards the south. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her, and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away, and his wife, and all that he had. Chapter 13. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the south. So Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now, Lord, that you would open up your scripture unto us, that we would appreciate once again the gospel all that thou hast given to redeem a people unto thyself, and that we would learn from these people and not make the same mistakes. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, you'll recall, I spent a little bit of time developing an appreciation that we might have for the two covenants in the Scripture, that there are two covenants. One is conditional, and that applies to national Israel. It's often called the Old Covenant. 
and the other is the unconditional covenant. It's the covenant that God gives unto us. It's typically called the everlasting covenant. That one applies to us. The conditional covenant does not apply to us. However, in the conditional covenant, you can appreciate all of the conditions that Christ had to meet to redeem a people unto himself. So there's much to be learned from it. It declares the righteousness of God, which we see manifest in Jesus Christ. You'll also hear the term Old Covenant and the term uh, New Covenant. And so what we wanted to appreciate from that when I began to separate some of the promises that we saw in the book of Genesis is we can appreciate that Abraham has a group of people that are direct descendants from him. They are the children of the flesh. There are also people of a spiritual nature that are said to be the children of promise. And it says that these are the children of Abraham, the children of the promise. So you have people that are under a works-based covenant, which is the old covenant, the conditional covenant, and you have those that are of grace, those that are born again by virtue of the grace that Jesus Christ bestows upon them, and that includes Jews and Gentiles, people from every family, which is what you read about in Genesis chapter 12 there when he says that, in these shall all families of the earth be blessed. It's a reference to Christ, and it's going to include people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue, out of which God takes people unto himself. Now, let's go take a look at Galatians chapter 4, because we are going to appreciate that the two major women in Abram's life represent two different covenants. And so in the book of Galatians, the Lord's explaining to us what's going on in the book of Genesis so that we would appreciate it from um, the perspective of which one applies to me. When you go through the Old Testament, as I said before us last week, with res uh, particularly in the book of Genesis, you can see that different promises are made to different peoples. That carries through the entire Old Testament scripture. You're going to be reading something about in Isaiah about Jacob, and you're going to ask yourself, well, is that of the seed of Jacob, meaning the flesh? Does that apply to national Israel, or is he speaking about the church? And that depends on what the promises are. If they're unconditional, why then he's talking about the spiritual seed. And hence we read Romans chapter 9 last week where we said that where, it, where we read, not all Israel is of Israel. There's a spiritual Israel, and that is a reference to the church. And then there's those that are related in the flesh to Israel, Jacob, just like they are to Abraham. So when you read through the Bible, don't apprehend all of the promises as though they're to you, because some of them apply to national Israel, and most certainly they should not take the promises that are meant for uh, the Christian, for those whom the Lord has called out of this world. So let's look at Galatians chapter 4, and I'll pick it up in verse 22. He's talking about the two sons that Abraham had, not speaking of all the children he had from Keturah. We're not even going to go down that road yet, but that does apply later. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. So he's telling you right off the bat, he's talking about Hagar and he's talking about Sarai. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. In other words, Abraham and Sarah cooked up this idea that, that Abraham would lie with Sarah to help God, um, excuse me, Abraham would lie with Hagar to help fulfill the promise of God. So it was a works-based um, process. So that child was born of the flesh. They thought it would be a good idea to do this, and so uh, Abraham went at Sarah's urging and lied with the uh, bondwoman, Hagar. So, but he who was of the bondwoman, that would be Ishmael, was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman, that would be Isaac, 
was by promise. God had promised Abraham that he would make a great nation out of him in the context of a spiritual nation. Isaac is that promised child. Verse 24, which things are an allegory for these are two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which engendereth to bondage, which is Agar. Now, that shouldn't be difficult to understand. Hagar was a bondwoman. She came from Egypt. So it's the Lord is setting the obvious before us here. She was a slave, and she represents the covenant of bondage. Verse 25, For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. So now he's going to tell us about two Jerusalem. Two covenants, two Jerusalems. One below, beneath, it's over in the land of Israel today, off the Mediterranean coast, and there's a heavenly one. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all, meaning mother of all saints, all of the Christians. For it is uh, written, Rejoice thou barren, which bearest not. Who was barren? That was Sarai. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate, that would be Sarai, hath many more children than she which hath it says, uh, but it should be the husband. And who had the husband? Hagar. Hagar is said to be his wife in another place of Scripture. So it's talking about how um, Sarah, though she was barren and bore not, would yet have more children than she that lay with her husband, um, Abraham. Now we, brethren, that would be the saints, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. And so... We are to appreciate that there was a covenant of promise, the result of which results in Christians. And uh, the children of the promise are Abraham's children. Uh, there are children that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ uh, through his faith that is given unto him. So, again, we have two covenants, and we do appreciate that these are all over the Scriptures, and you need to be able to sort through them, which I confess is not a difficult thing to do in the context of if it's a gift, that's the one you want to pay attention to. If it's by works, that belongs to somebody else. So use that as a measuring stick with which to separate these two covenants. Now, we have Hagar, and we have the covenant of works, which represents uh, national Israel, and it basically involves and includes everybody else, everybody else on the planet that is not um, a beneficiary of the everlasting covenant. The covenant of grace, which Sarai represents, is a gift from God, and it is not yours to give to anybody. It is God's to give. It is a gift from God. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Sarai represents the covenant of grace. It is not to be given away. It can only be given by God. So, Abraham's walk starts well. He's called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He gets as far as Haran. He waits for the old man to die like we talked about last week, and then he moves on from there. It's only after the old man dies that you can come into the promised land. Same thing's true with Lot. If you notice, his father is dead as well. So Lot comes into the promised land walking with Abram. Abraham walks with God. And so we see the same thing take place here, the Lord teaching that truth a second time. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6, we see that Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Morai, 
and the Canaanite was then in the land. So, names mean something in the scripture, and so as he comes into the promised land, he comes to Shechem, which means back or shoulder, suggestive that he is carrying a burden with him. And every Christian comes uh, to the Lord, or is called to the Lord, and he is carrying the burden of his sin upon them. And the Lord shares with us in Matthew chapter 11, Verses 28, Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So when a person is drawn to the Lord, he comes with a burden on him. He comes with a yoke. And a yoke is a suggestive that you are under the dominion of somebody else. And so the saint, as I said, the natural man is under the yoke of Satan, and he does his bidding and his will, and the will of the flesh is what he does. And then Christ says, Hey, Put my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. And he says, Come unto me, all ye that are laboring and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Pay attention to that. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So learn of me. So there he is in Shechem, which means back or shoulder, and he comes to the plain of Morai. Now the word plain there, and I hate to say this, but it should be translated as tree. That's what it is in the Hebrew. So he comes to the tree of Morai. Morai means teacher. And so what do you suppose he is going to learn about in terms of his pilgrimage when he's brought to a tree in a place where he's going to learn? Well, I think he's going to learn about who's going to be offered up on the tree. He's going to be taught about Christ. So Abraham, as I mentioned last week, or the week before, was a former idolater. No doubt he did as his father did in Ur of the Chaldees. His father was an idolater. So he's now in the land of the Canaanites, where Leviticus 18 will tell you about the Canaanites, that they were grievous idolaters. They sacrificed their babies to Molech. Scripture says they passed them through the fire, so they would burn their children alive to the god Molech. They were adulterers. Sodomites and engaged in um, just heinous sexual practices, including bestiality. Leviticus 18 lays it out, and the Lord says, Do not behave like the people of the land behave. Do not do what they're doing. So Abraham or Abram is surrounded by all of these um, by these people that are engaged in these awful practices. And he himself was called out of idolatry, as indeed all Christians are called out of idolatry, because they do not worship the true and living God. Scripture says that. There is none that seeketh God, there is none that understandeth. God has to call us to himself. So it is here that God is going to try his faith. It is here where this his walk with the Lord begins. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord, uh, speaking through Moses, is talking to the Israelites while they're in the wilderness, and he's sharing with them what he has been doing with them in case that is something they don't understand. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, he's speaking to them, and he says, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness. Why did he do that for forty years? To humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. So here we are in the wilderness of this world, and the Lord is trying and proving our hearts to teach us about himself. And if you can look back on your Christian walk, which you should be able to do with, I'm not going to say 2020 vision, because your vision is ever improving as you grow in the um, grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can look back and go, oh, 
I see what the Lord was doing 10 years ago, and I see how I have profited from that particular experience. So verse 3, and he humbled thee, if you have not been humbled, you're not walking with the Lord, and suffered thee to hunger. Well, how many of you have ever missed a meal? Do you think he's really talking about spirit, um, material food, or is he talking about spiritual food? Abram is going to hunger where he is there in um, the land of Canaan. And fed thee with manna, that would represent being fed with Christ. Abraham's going to enjoy this, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee to know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. This is the first trial Abram's going to run into, this issue of having a famine. So let's see what he does. Um, in verse down in verse 6, I'm read verse 4. And thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. So the Lord is telling them that though they were concerned and fearful about many things around them, they were fearful of the people around about them, they were afraid they were not going to get water to drink, material water, they were afraid they weren't going to get food to eat, and yet he fed them um, every step of the way. They never went hungry. There were times when they uh, grew weary of the food that they were fed, and that's a very bad sign because he fed them manna, which is Christ, and they didn't want that. They wanted the food that the world eats. Um, so he was trying and proving their hearts. Um, the fact that their shoes did not wear out after 40 years ought to tell them something about the preservation of Christ, how he bears us up and carries us along our way and makes sure that we were going to get where we're going. So they were surrounded by miracles every step of the way and yet failed to appreciate it and failed to see it. Um, let that not be our lot. Um, verse 16, I'll drop down there, speaking of the Lord, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do good at the latter end. So this is all working towards their good. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Um, so the Lord has set these people before us as an example of what things they struggled with, what trials they endured, what things they suffered, and how they stumbled and failed, and yet God nevertheless carried them along the way. So, that same thing is true with respect to us. In 1 Peter 1.7, the Lord says about our trial, 1 Peter 1.7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So just like the Lord tries metal, just like the refiner refines uh, gold and silver with heat and fire to bring the slag to the top uh, from which the uh, refiner skims off, so too does he try our life. He puts us through trials and tribulations and then uh, uses that to um, help us to let go of the world and to look to him and trust in him where we can find true peace, rest, and satisfaction. Now, just like Abram, you're going to fall flat on your face initially. We all do. I've done it, and uh, you're going to do it too. Um, in Romans chapter 5, the Lord, again, helps us to appreciate the growth that a person can enjoy through trials and tribulations. In Romans chapter uh, 5, uh, Romans chapter 5, pick it up in verse 3, speaking of the glory of God, he says, But not only so, and we glory in tribulations also, Glory and tribulations, knowing that tribulations work with patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts 
by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So through this process of tribulation, we find ourselves on our knees coming to the Lord where we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. This is a process that we need uh, go through so that, again, as I said, we will draw closer to the Lord, and in drawing closer to the Lord, by virtue of the gift of the Holy Spirit that he has given unto us, we can find this wonderful comfort and wonderful source, an infinite source of, of wealth by, upon which we can rely. So, um, we see that he's uh, Abram, back in Genesis chapter 12, is going to move from the teacher at Moriah, from the tree, uh, the teacher at Moriah, and while he's there, he says he builds, uh, an, he builds an altar to the Lord um, there, and I think there's some communion there. And so we can appreciate that already he has um, come to appreciate the substitutionary offering that, of course, points to uh, Christ. It says in verse 7, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. So he's having communion with the Lord at the altar. Um, so from there, with this communion from God, we see that he moves to a mountain. He moves to higher ground. And so it will ever be when you are in communion with the Lord, you will move to higher ground. So it says in verse 8 that he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So he moves to higher ground. And isn't that interesting that the Lord would give us a lesson in geography? He's on a mountain and he's between two cities. And um, the allusion here is to Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about coming to the heavenly Mount Zion, where you are in communion with the saints. You're in communion with God. You're in communion with Christ. And uh, there we would certainly enjoy much peace. Now, in Psalm 19 that uh, our deacon read for us, it talked about the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day, I'm, that's as far as I can quote. I'm sorry. So I'm going to pull it up and look at Psalm 19 so we can appreciate that. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day, other speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The Lord is speaking of general revelation. The sun rises in the east, it goes through the sky, and it ends and it uh, sets in the west. And so he likens it unto the Son of God riding a chariot across the heavens. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. In the heavens is a tabernacle for the sun. We know that the sun represents Christ himself. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of Righteousness. In verse 5, it says, Which, as a bridegroom, speaking of Christ, cometh out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heavens, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Again, all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the God has orchestrated everything on this planet to glorify himself, and he's put this big yellow ball in the sky to represent Christ, it rises in the east and sets in the west. So here we are in verse 8, the Lord giving us a geography lesson that he's got an altar on top of a mountain. To the east of him is the city Hai, and on the west of him is the city of Bethel. 
Well, what do you suppose Ai means? It means heap of ruins. Heap of ruins. Now, I know you all know what uh, Bethel means. It means house of God. House of God. So we have set up there, with respect to the geography, a very rude construct of the temple, which faces east. On the western end of the temple is the holiest of holies. That would be the tabernacle of God. So where the sun is rising up, and it is going to the tabernacle of God. Now, the city of Hai, you'll remember, that was the second city of conquest for Joshua and the people of Israel when the Lord brought them into the promised land. But there was a problem with that city. The first city they took exclusively by faith. Remember that God told them the plan for conquest of uh, Jericho was they would march around the city seven times, and on the seventh time they would blow the trumpet, and the walls would come down, and they would take the city. Uh, Nobody could even remotely argue that they took that city by their own strength. It was exclusively um, uh, by God's grace and by faith that that city was overtaken. So um, fresh with the confidence of the conquest of that city, but wholly ignorant of the means by which they overtook that city, they thought to themselves, we don't need very many people to take the city of Ai. It's just a small city, so let's go take it on our own. Joshua, you don't even need to come, and don't waste your time consulting with the Lord. We're just going to go take that city. Um, But they met there a humiliating defeat because they had failed in three things. One, they were encumbered by the sin of uh, Achan, who coveted, you know, the gold and silver and a goodly Babylonian garment from um, Jericho, and the Lord had told them not to take anything from that city because the first fruits belong to the Lord. That's a principle. The first fruits belong to the Lord, and Achan would take the first fruits of God, for which he was put to death for. So they were encumbered by sin. They failed to consult God, and they did not take Joshua with them, who is a type of Christ. So those lesson here is for us always, is as you're going to move forward in life, you don't want to be encumbered encumbered by sin. Uh, You don't want to fail to consult God as you move forward, and you certainly want to take the Lord with you, um, which you will do as a Christian, but nevertheless, you can appreciate the spiritual lessons that are taught there. So we should appreciate, in terms of our own heart, which this represents, is that you are not going from the city of Ai without going through the altar of God, the sacrifice of Christ, to get to Bethel, the house of God. And so it is here where he calls upon the name of the Lord. And this is where I think he appreciates uh, what is necessary uh, to be done in his life um, to get to the house of God, that it's going to be through the um, sacrifice of Christ. So he calls on the name of the Lord here, and apparently he doesn't hear an answer. And this is common, I think, in every Christian. You will make your request known unto the Lord, and you will not hear anything from the Lord. So then you begin to presume upon yourself, well, I think he wants me to do this. I mean, you, you look at your what would Jesus do bracelet, and you think, well, I think this is what I'm going to do. So what does he do is from verse 9, it talks about he goes um, still down towards the south. First nine, Abraham journeyed going on still toward the south. So what does that mean? Geographically speaking, he's going from high ground to low ground. It is a continual descent until he gets down into Egypt. Now, there's a famine in the land. And as I had mentioned to you, he is indeed suffering a famine. Not a famine of hunger or a famine of thirst, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. That's what a true famine is. We read that in Deuteronomy, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So the lesson here, of course, is to learn from these people 
Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning so that we're not going to make the same mistakes as they make, but through the patience and comfort of scriptures would have hope. We would trust and rest in Christ. So as Christians, we need to be admonished to patiently wait on the Lord. Be patient and wait for an answer. Recall that God promised he'd make of him a great nation. That's Genesis 12 too. He's got to wait 25 years before Isaac is born. And in the meantime, he struggles and he slowly grows in faith and he lies with Hagar to help it come to fruition and there's been nothing but trouble and misery ever since he lay with Hagar. And again, I want that's another reason I wanted to separate those covenants last week is because forget about the land. Forget about it. These people want to die for that ground. Knock yourself out. God promised to Abraham the cosmos. That's our promise. It's not that land over there. But those people have been fighting over it ever since Hagar and Abraham conceived Ishmael. Now, Abraham should have stayed upon the mountain at the altar. He should have stayed on his knees. God's going to provide for him. He said he would make a great nation out of him. If he's going to make a great nation out of him, he's got to live. I mean, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to connect the dots here. He should have stayed on his knees. He should have stayed in his Bible if he'd had one. You know what I'm trying to say here. And with respect to us, we need to stay on our knees. We need to stay in the Word. Needed to stay in Christian community so that um, he can receive the exhortation and encouragement you get from other Christians when you're thinking of straying. You know, we bounce things off of each other, and then somebody will um, say a word fit in season for your benefit, and you'll think, well, the Lord's talking to me through that person. And so he does not do that. That's what we should do. We should stay in communion, stay in the Bible, and stay on our knees. But he does not do that. He experiences a famine. What are the Canaanites doing? Well, they're going down to Egypt. Why would they do that? Because Egypt doesn't need to have rain to have water. Their water comes from the, a, a watershed much further south in Africa, so they've got this nice river flowing through them. So when there's not raining up here in the land of Palestine, they still have water and they still have food. So I wonder what the Canaanites are doing. Oh, they're going down to Egypt. Okay, so maybe that's what I'll do. Scripture says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So if you're looking to the law and you think you can articulate what sin is in, let's say, I don't know, 10 verses, um, it's much broader than that. All unrighteousness is sin and whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So there he is. He's suffering a famine. Oh, no, I don't trust the Lord's going to feed me here. I better go down to Egypt. Um, You'll recall when we get to Isaac that there's going to be a famine. Also, God's going to specifically tell Isaac, don't go down into Egypt. Isaac builds lots of wells, and he prospers during the famine, and the other nations do not because God is blessing him and providing for him just like God would do for you and just like he, does, he would do, would have done for Abram if he had stayed in the land and looked for the Lord. So Abram's in the land. He's a little fearful based on what he sees in the Canaanites. They're terrible idolaters. They're engaging in human sacrifice and sodomy, which we know it's taking place certainly all over the place, but particularly down in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we should appreciate that nothing has changed in the world. We are surrounded by Canaanites. Here we are in California, and we know that this world, is, this state in particular, is so upside down spiritually, it really vexes all of us, I think, to live here. And so just as Lot would say that his, his righteous soul was vexed by the uh, conversation or the uh, 
behavior of the sodomites, so certainly is ours, vexed by what's going on here. We murder millions of babies in this country through the process of abortion, and now they're codifying child mutation by trying to change sexes of children, which will render them, if they just take it pharmaceutically, it'll render them um, sterile. So our land is no different than the one that Abram lived in. It's every bit as grievous um, today as it was then, because men don't get smarter, they get dumber as time progresses. And it would seem to me almost as though we're entering into another dark ages, another period of dark ages, like Europe suffered during um, the dark ages of that time, because it just seems like God is removing his hand of grace from this world, and we are seeing the effects of that. So the solution for us, of course, is not to do like the Canaanites do and seek sustenance in a material context, but again, get up to the mountain, get to the altar, get on your knees, stay in your word, and stay in Christian fellowship. So, Every person here, I think, most people, have asked themselves, I wonder if I should move from this place. Um, It's expensive, it's politically untenable, and I wonder if I should move. So my advice to you is seek the will of the Lord. And if he leads you to move, then move, okay? I made this mistake years ago when God providentially put a Christian in my life. We moved to a house in Vacaville, the man next door contracted pancreatic cancer. He was dead within six weeks, and a born-again Christian moved in next door. I mean, if you can't see the grace of God in that, then you have to be completely blind, as I was at the time. So I moved from that location to another location, got sick, suffered the health benefits, health um, effects of it for 30 years. So I'm not moving until God makes it crystal clear that he's got some place for me to move to. Now, again, with this uh, spiritual principle set before us, you're going to find that Isaac goes from well to well. You're going to find that um, Isaac's wife is found at a well. Moses' wife is found at a well. Um, So that's a principle the Lord sets before us here. So move to where there's a well meaning a church where the gospel is preached. So if you're going to move, make sure there's a well there. Um, So continuing with Abraham here, um, he sees the Canaanites, and so he concocts a plan to save himself, and he denies his wife. So one sin, his lack of faith in God's providence, leads to sin number two, a lack of faith in God's preservation. This is common for us. One sin leads to another. Once you start down the wrong road, you'll go down far enough until you fall flat on your face, stumble and fall, and God picks you up and turns you around. So, as I alluded to later, he left his what would Jesus do bracelet on the altar back up on the mount. He does the exact opposite of what God did. He leads one. He leads his wife to sin Through this lie, it's an equivocation. Um, The Lord tells us in James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no man say he is tempted. I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So he tempts his wife to sin. He draws her into this sin of equivocation with him. And to be sure, an equivocation means that a truth is set before somebody with the intent to mislead. So you tell somebody something with the idea that they will 
misunderstand it towards their own, they will apport uh, uh, to it their own meaning. So when he says that his wife is his sister, he's technically saying something that is true. It's, it is, she is his sister. They have the same father, but they have different mothers. And let me just show you the gospel application of that. I am married to my wife. She is my sister, as well as my wife. We have the same heavenly father, but we are born of different parents in the flesh. So if you are married to a Christian, you are married to your sister. That's technically true. Um, so it's technically true, but the intent is to mislead the people so that they will not slay Abraham and take his wife. Um, it is interesting, as it says in Romans, that the law of God is written upon the hearts of every man. It's not that Pharaoh would just take the wife and leave him living, because then it's an adulterous relationship. So he'll take the wife, kill the husband, and now it's not an adulterous relationship anywhere, anymore. And Romans chapter 7 speaks about that in a spiritual context. Our first husband was the law, and the law, we died to the law through the death of Christ, and now we're married to the resurrected Christ, so we're not committing adultery. We're not married to the law and to Christ. You're married to one or the other. So it's a gospel application there. Um, so, any event, God has impressed that truth upon everybody. The second thing he does is he puts a stumbling block before Pharaoh. He puts a stumbling block before Pharaoh. And then Romans chapter 14, um, verse um, 21. I'm not going to read that, it, but it just says, you should never put a stumbling block before some, somebody else. If somebody struggles with alcohol, you're not going to have a drink in front of them that might entice them to have a drink as well. So do not put a stumbling block before somebody. He does that before Pharaoh, leading him to possibly sin by taking in this wife and committing adultery. Um, and the third thing he does, which is the most grievous of all, is he sacrifices his wife to save himself. He sacrifices his wife to save himself. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Christ did the opposite. He sacrificed himself to save his wife. Abraham does the exact opposite. It's an incredibly grievous, egregious thing that he did there. So he said that his wife would be fair to look upon, and that's what it says. Hey, she was fair to look upon. And so you should appreciate that in a Christian context, that the Christian is fair to look upon in this world. Ephesians 5.26 continues speaking about the woman that he might sanctify and cleanse it, cleanse the wife, cleanse the woman with the washing of water by the word that he, Christ, might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So take that physical description and apply that in a spiritual context, in a moral context on the Christian, and the Christian should be fair to look upon. You should be able to look at somebody, hopefully, people should be able to look at you, hopefully, and see Christ in you, and that would indeed be fair to look upon. You should be able to walk around in this world with the, uh, an appreciation of who you are in Christ and what Christ has done for you. You should not be vexed by the foolishness of this world and have this uh, look upon you of concern and consternation and fearful wondering and worry about where things are going because God has revealed his will to you in your life and in the world, and you should just have this sense of peace about you. I say should because we don't always. Young Christians do not, and Abram's going to stumble here grievously, as I had said before. But as you become a more mature Christian, that ought to be your case. 
In 2 Corinthians 11.2, he speaks of the church, for I am jealous over you. This is God speaking. God is jealous over the Christian with a godly jealousy. Remember, jealousy is a positive term. God is jealous for what is his own. Envy is a negative term. You are envious for what somebody else has, but you are jealous for what is your own. Um, For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin uh, to Christ. And so God cleans us up from this world, uh, sets us up on high, and we should, uh, that should be manifest in our demeanor. So we should be fair to look upon. And so uh, fearing that, uh, what is true, that she's fair to look upon, that Pharaoh would take her in his house, and that's exactly what Pharaoh does. Back to Genesis 12, verses 15 and 16. We read, the princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he, that would be Pharaoh, entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. Um, so what is taking place here? Pharaoh is paying a dowry to Abram for his wife. Well, isn't that a nice thing? It's interesting what we do in Western cultures, and as I have shared with us in the past, that we turn everything upside down, and it's an attack on the gospel. In our society, the uh, family of the bride pays the dowry, pays for the wedding, as though they would pay somebody and unload their odious daughter. That's exactly opposite of what happens in the Middle East and what happens in the scriptures, where it is the groom who pays a dowry to the bride's wife, to the bride's family, to, um, I don't want to use the word purchase, but to give gifts uh, in appreciation for what they are receiving in terms of the daughter. Now, clearly you can see the gospel in that as opposed to what we do in Western society. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it speaks of the church of God, the church of God being purchased with his own blood. God paid for his bride with the blood of his son. John three sixteen. For God so loved um, the world, that would be the church, that he gave his only begotten son. So there was a a very, um, um, well, large price. Words can't express what the Lord paid for his church. He gave up his only begotten son. He he paid it, uh, bought it with his own blood. Um, And that's the price that he paid to get a bride for his son. So we see this taking place here in terms of the dowry that Pharaoh is paying for Pharaoh's, for, excuse me, for Abram's wife. Now, in Romans 8, 28, we read, All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So it seems like even though Abraham, Abraham has sinned, he's picking up all sorts of material possessions along the way, and that is true. But be careful with the blessings that the Lord gives you, how you use them, because you can use the blessings of the Lord to your own hurt. Well... Who do you suppose he picked up here but Hagar, the Egyptian bondwoman? And as I shared with us in the past, that that is going to become a problem later because uh, Sarai is going to suggest that he lie with this woman that he picked up in Egypt through lack of faith. So be careful what you use uh, with the blessings that the Lord has given you because you can use them to your hurt. Now, um, as I said before in Galatians chapter 4, we read there that Sarai represents the gospel of grace. She represents the covenant of grace. So it is not yours to give. She was not Abram's to give. She had been given to Abram by God and was not for, her, for him to give. Nor is it for Pharaoh to take. 
And so what you see happening in Arminianistic churches, Arminianistic preachers, some getting great gain in the process, they are making uh, merchandise of the Father's house by offering up the gospel as though anybody can have it and anybody can take it. They are prospering in that process just as Abram did here through what he had done. With feign words, they make merchandise of the people by which they receive great material wealth. We've all seen the preachers that are flying private jets around and living very high. Uh, The one that comes to mind, of course, is Joel Osteen, who makes millions of dollars telling people things that they want to hear as though they can just come and take the grace of God at any time they choose, and they can't. It's a gift of God only from God. It is only his to give, and you cannot take it. Whether it's been given to you or not, you have to receive it by grace. In John uh, 1, 13, you know, it talks about uh, people becoming, um, having power to receive the sons of God. It says, which were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. It is only the will of God that we would enjoy this wonderful gift that we have. So when we go out and preach the gospel, we've got to be careful that we just don't present it to somebody as though they can take it at their, uh, at their choosing. It is indeed a gift of God. So, in spite of all of the things that Abram has done here, what does the Lord do? In verse 17, we read that he plagues Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So, he keeps Sarah from being defiled, just like he does us in the world. He watches over us, he protects us, he shepherds us, he goes before us, he goes behind us, and keeps us from defiling ourselves too much, we, although we are prone to do that by virtue of our, the, um, the flesh that is within us. But he keeps our spirits, our spirits clean. So he keeps um, Sarah from being defiled. He plagues Pharaoh's himself as well as his house. And um, what is particularly embarrassing, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but I have, he has the secular person rebuke the Christian The secular person rebukes the Christian and kicks him out. And that's humiliating. It's embarrassing. I've had that happen to me. And when it happens to me, this is what I think. I hope they don't know I'm a Christian because I will be bringing shame to God for the thing that I have done. And this person seeing what uh, awful thing that I have done will think to themselves, you know, Christianity, I don't want any part of that. So it can be very embarrassing to engage in things like this, to sin, to do things contrary to God, and then suffer the rebuke of a non-Christian. Um, so verse, chapter 13, verse 1 through 4, we can appreciate what Abram does next. And Abram went up, he's coming up now, out of Egypt, he and his wife, God has restored her to him, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. So now he's climbing a gradual grade, going back up. Abraham was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel. He goes back to the house of God, unto the place where his tent had been before at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai. God's very clear here, unto the place of the altar. This is what we should all do when we sin, is we need to go before the throne of grace where God bids us in spite of our sin, in spite of the things that we have done, he bolds us to boldly go there, go before the throne of grace where we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first, 
And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And so he goes back to the altar and gets on his knees, gets, opens up his Bible again, you know, gets back in Christian fellowship, and he calls on the name of the Lord. And he's going to be more patient this time because he's learned, and as we should learn and grow with Christ as we go through life, be a little bit more patient this time. Let's wait and see what the Lord has to say. And um, things are going to go a little better for him, but he's still going to struggle. And as I said before, Abraham represents the man of faith who's going to walk by faith, but that process is a long, slow process whereby we stumble and fall and fail, and the Lord picks us up and keeps us moving, and we slowly grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mature Christians face the world very different from young Christians. Young Christians, you see them thrashing about a lot. They get caught up in the world. They get caught up in the affairs of this life to their hurt initially. And the Lord slowly removes them from it, slowly causes them to turn from anything other than him to him, which is indeed what the mature Christian does. The mature Christian just goes, no, I'm just going straight to the throne of grace. I'm just going straight to Christ. I'm going to get on my knees right now, and I'm going to pray about it. And I'm going to be patient and wait for what the Lord has to say and how he will lead me. And this we should all do at every phase of our Christian walk. And I will say amen. Amen.